Hi, I'm Anna Burt, and I'm Sue's daughter. Hi, I'm Emily Benito. I'm Trudy's daughter. Though our mums are both dead, the fact doesn't change. We're both adapting to living our lives without our mums, and know we are very much not the only ones. We have joined forces to create a podcast in the hope that we can provide what we feel we needed and still need in our grief. The mothership, the mother load. There's no getting around that mother means something big. There are so many different kinds of mother, biological, step, figure, and so many different kinds of grief when they're gone. We're here to do what we can in podcast form, welcoming guests so we can explore our experiences together, where they converge and where they vary, and, hopefully, understand a little more about the nuance and scope of The The Mother mother of All Losses. Hello, Anna Burt. How is your grief today? Emily Benita, firstly, it's very nice to see your face. We don't we don't do this with the um, camera on much, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, nudge. And it's <laughs> lovely. I feel like we're kind of together. Um, my grief today, today would have been Dr. Sue's 62nd birthday. Um, 25th of February, 1959, she was born. And um, my gorgeous friend, Hannah, made me, um, bought me a candle that she, that was personalised with mum's year of birth and says Dr. Sue on it and I've lit it in the corner over there and um, we took the dog for a walk and I didn't work and but but my grief is is normally more acute on her birthday she liked her birthday and it's just another year that she didn't age you know and I I found her 60th birthday a couple of years ago really difficult because it just felt like a milestone um, for her that that we can celebrate together and I've definitely been thinking about her you know, more recently. But I do this time of year. The daffodils are coming out. Daffodils are her favourite flower. Like, it just, yeah, it feels, it feels, um, you know, to use the water analogy, it feels um, choppy. Mm. But okay, you know, and um, which is why I'm even more excited um, about our guest today, which we will reveal <laughs> shortly, um, because it's a very special guest. Um, and Emily, how is your grief today? Well, before I answer that, I just wanted to come back to that and say that the Dr. Sue candle is, that's gorgeous. Like, quite literally, a little light shining today and and always. Um, I'm also very excited about our very special guest today. Um, how's my grief? It's been, yeah, acute, I think, is such a good word because it feels kind of, um, kind of sharp and, and pointing and quite specific. And I've had it a bit recently and again it's like oh there doesn't need to be anything that triggers that truth is still dead <laughs> like that's, that's still the fact that's the event you know um and I don't know it's it's funny that uh Dr Sue loved daffodils because truths did as well like that was always a kind of signifier in our house you know daffodils would come in and that the seasons were changing and uh also can I just say it doesn't surprise me that Dr Sue is a Pisces in the slightest I know you're still new to this astrology, Lark, but I'm determined to get you to have fun with it. But yeah. <laughs> Why? What does that mean? Oh, oh, it could be a whole different arm of the podcast. <laughs> so Anna, who is our very special guest today? Yeah, who is our sad guest today? I'm joking. Um, grief isn't always about being sad. Um, but I'm joined here by my baby brother, who is 
in his mid twenties and absolutely not a baby, also built like a brick shit house on about six <laughs> foot one, <laughs> towering over me. And I'm really excited because um, he's with me in my living room. Um, he's in my buble before anyone tells me off. Um, and this is Seb. Welcome to the podcast, little Seb. Hi, thank Hi. you. <laughs> this feels strange. <laughs> it does feel strange. Um, I'm going to kick off today, if you don't mind, Em. Please, take it away. I'm going to ask our Seb how your grief is today. Oh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and how's your grief been and changed? Oh, I mean, it's definitely changed. It's such like an un-like monolithic thing, isn't it? I don't know what that means. Neither do I. <laughs> I get nervous to use long words. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's even the right word. Um, oh, it it it, it scanned to me, guys. Like monolithic is just it's a huge structure. So, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously more. I think not heightened, but I'm much more aware of it today because it is her birthday, um, Doctor Sue's birthday, and I did completely forget. But I'm always reminded by the same person who's my lovely friend Zoe because she has the same birthday, and so she basically messaged me today being like, "Hey, babe, thinking of you," and I was like, "Why? It's your birthday." <laughs> And you're an only child, so like you see it's all about you. Um, and she was like, "Cause it's your mum's birthday and as well." And I was like, oh, yeah, "It really? Yeah, no, it is. Yeah." Um, though I do always forget every single year, um, which makes me feel quite guilty. There's a lot of guilt in my grief, I think. But let's explore. That. <laughs> oh God, I feel like I'm in therapy again. Well, you have recently started therapy, I have. and how has that been in changing your grief or, or coming to terms with your grief? I think, I mean, mainly it's a lot to do with, like, um, not, like, abandonment issues, because I've never really felt, like, abandoned. It's just, I think it's just, like, coming to terms with the person not being there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but my therapy's actually about to come to an end, which I'm a bit sad about. But, yeah. I think, as well, you were, you were a young 18 when Mum died. Yeah, and I thought I was a real grown-up, and I'm not entirely sure I'm a real grown-up now, so, like, I really didn't know what I was doing. 18. You're not an adult at 18. No. I don't think you're ever really an adult, though. But, like, yeah, I thought I was very good at dealing with it, but my way of dealing with it was just to sort of ignore it and drink a lot. (laughs) And how do you feel talking about mum today? Yeah, I mean, I've been quite apprehensive about this, to be honest, because it is... I mean, I spend, like, an hour in therapy every week talking about it, and then I was just like... I don't know how I'm going to talk about it in a sort of a more, even, maybe even a more sort of mediated environment. But no, I'm just excited. Confirming that the two of you are adorable. The family resemblance is very strong. Yeah. And Seb is definitely uh, well built. I wouldn't know that you were sitting, they are sitting down next to each other. And again, not to sound too therapy, um, but before we come, I will ask the next question. But I'm just really interested because you did mention guilt there, Seb, and like, what does that kind of feel like in your head? Like, is there a sort of, can you verbalise it at all, the feeling? Because I know with guilt, it can just, I, I get it as well. And it just kind of radiates. And sometimes actually unpicking what it says to me is is tricky. But if you're open to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think my, my idea of guilt with grief is interesting because, like, that whole, like, five or seven stages of grief, whatever it is, you know, that famous thing is obviously bullshit but like there's I don't think there's a right there's no like right and wrong way to grieve but there's definitely a wrong way to grieve if that makes sense like I don't know if this makes any sense it doesn't really even make sense in my head but it's like do you feel like you weren't grieving properly 
I think when I was younger, I just kind of, like, I went, like, she died and I went back to sick form, like, two days later, because I was just like, <laughs> it's all fine, you know, so, yeah, I'm an 18-year-old boy, and, like, which is really interesting, because we were never really raised with, like, any sense of, like, gender, like, norms or roles, but I definitely, like, still inherently had that sort of, like, masculine, like, everything's fine, I'll sweep it under the carpet and deal with it later, which was a really bad idea, because I just ended up suppressing it quite a lot until pretty recently so I feel basically I feel guilty about how I initially dealt with it but then at the back of my mind I'm also like that wasn't necessarily wrong way to do it but like I think there is a wrong way to grieve if that makes sense I, I think it's really difficult and I think that guilt and grief are so linked aren't they because you know there's there's all the regret and the what ifs and all of that but my god you're an 18 year old boy you're a kid I mean don't worry yeah. Don't worry. I mean, yeah, I definitely use that as the excuse why I didn't do very well on my A levels. <laughs> um, Maybe it's a reason, not an excuse. I think sometimes we're really hard on ourselves, particularly. Yeah, true. I'm with I'm with Anna. Like the shock alone, I think we don't really understand what shock is, and that there is something available to you that's more normal and familiar, like going back to sixth form, of course. And actually, like not that long ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who very recently um, lost his mum and he had a very difficult relationship with her and obviously I plugged the podcast and just sort of said to him like in terms of this right and wrong ways grief he was saying like I haven't cried yet and I don't know how healthy that is yeah and I was like you know what I think also the way that we you know in our bloody society today there's this obsession on health with wellness, which I think ends up going right the way round and being like commodified and not particularly healthy at all. And I said, look, as long as you're not putting yourself at risk, don't worry about being healthy or not. And I think that's it. It's like, yeah, I, I was, oh, I mean, Seb, when, when my mum was ill, like I was drinking like at least a bottle of wine a day. Yeah. Which I don't think is, is, is neither healthy nor sustainable. <laughs> but you know what? I, and in terms of risk, I was kind of pushing myself into a risk category. But overall, it wasn't necessarily the most unhealthy thing to do. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I almost feel like because she was ill for such a long time and got like progressively worse, but quite quickly, I think, I mean, I always have this debate. My friend, a friend of mine at university, Dom, his dad died like overnight, like massive heart attack. Like, and I remember thinking, I remember like seeing him the next day, and like no one was speaking to him because no one really knew how to deal with it. And I just kind of went up to him and I was just like, "Hello, mate. Like, are you okay? Because <laughs> you shouldn't be." Um, and then we basically just sat there and had a debate for like an hour about like who, it was how, how is it more sad if your parent dies straight away in like an instant? You get that phone call being like, "Dad's dead" for him, or is it worse, sort of watching your parents sort of decline? And I, I think because of that, I think I did a lot of my grieving before she died, if that makes sense, because she was ill for such a long time. And by the end, she was so off her face on drugs, you know, on, well, you know, like prescription drugs um, and the occasional joint. Um, but, she, <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, she was like, I think, I think I'd sort of made my, not made my peace, but sort of come to terms with that. Yeah, I Before. do. Rem- yeah, and there was also because she was in so much pain. Oh, yeah, that the actually there was relief because she was also a fit and healthy woman in her early fifties. Of you know, apart from the yeah. very aggressive cancer. Yeah. but like 
so it took her a long time to die. Yeah. You know, a bit like that awkward thing when you say bye to someone and yeah. they keep walking the yeah, same yeah, way yeah, down yeah. the road. Yeah, exactly. It took her about five days to die. Yeah. And she was basically like, unconscious really yeah. for that time I mean the thing and I've never really spoken about this before but like I remember my dad coming in because I hadn't seen her for a few days in the hospice because I just I found it too difficult and then I basically my dad came in and I knew exactly like he came in and sort of woke me up and sat at the end of my bed and I sort of was just like well of course mum's just died and he was just like now Sebastian you know <laughs> your mother died last night and I remember like my first thought was like thank god for that mm-hmm. because she was just in like crippling, agonizing pain. No matter how many epidurals or drugs they gave her, she was in visible pain. And I remember, I remember just sort of thinking, "Oh, thank God she's died." In a, like, it, like not to sound sadistic, but like it because was, there was no coming back. Because there was no there, coming yeah. back, and, and she was just in so much pain, and it was almost like euthanasia. Like in a in a way, I was just kind of like, if if I could have given her a drug overdose and got away with it, I a hundred percent would have. Which is interesting because she was a professor in medical ethics. She wasn't which a was, professor. Well, she was a, she a lecturer. She that. was, yeah, <laughs> a lecturer in medical ethics and was, you know, knew her stuff. So, like, it was kind of like, I'm seeing this. It, like, she did a lot of stuff um, and research about assisted euthanasia dying, and assisted yeah. dying. I remember thinking, I would have absolutely loved to have assisted your death if it just meant you sobbing in such pain. Well, it's really crazy to hear you say that because I had no idea that you were thinking... In fact, we've never had that conversation. Oh, no, because I didn't speak about it back then. You didn't. I was a young no. age as well. No, and also I really believe in not forcing people to talk about their mm. grief, and you know, I hope you know that I was always there. Yeah. But I'm not going to sit there and be like, "But how are you really?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you don't want that. No. And that's don't. not how. That was not how best to support you at that time. No. Now it's a bit different. Yeah, because we're older and wiser. I hope. I'd like to think so. I will. I will come to uh, our questions now, and obviously, way back in our very first pilot episode, we heard a little bit about Doctor Sue. But of course, how she lived can be a very different perspective from you, Seb. So, would you like to tell us how your mum lived? I mean, she was deeply terrifying. <laughs> But, like, in, in, like, a really nice way, like, in the sense of, like, you don't want to piss her off, but you really wanted her to be on your side when, you know, when you needed it, because she was, like, viciously protective in, like, a lot of ways, which was really nice. Um, she made many of my teachers cry. Um, and quit, I think, even. No, that's yeah. awful. Yeah. Um, which was great to see. Um, but, yeah, you really didn't want to... You really didn't want to get on her bad side. Um, but yeah, there was a few moments where where she made my teachers cry and they sort of never had an issue with me again after that. Um, and that was very... She was cutting cutting with words. Being that intelligent, I think, really does pay off. Um, she'd never have to physically fight someone, but she could essentially get away with or do whatever she wanted by just talking. Um, yeah. So yeah, she lived... I mean, she lived a... Ma- like, and this was, I remember this at the funeral, and I don't... Particularly remember a lot of the funeral because it does like memories just sort of fade. Like I mean, it was no, nearly eight years yeah, ago, and there's nothing really like that's a sad sort of reality. But memories just sort of fade, and everyone kept everyone who spoke. And Dad in the eulogy was just like she did a ridiculous amount of stuff in in a relatively short time. Like she lived all over the world, she worked all over the world, she had 
what, a couple masters, PhD, like uh, actually she, she didn't masters. have a masters. Did she not? No, she just went she went straight to PhD. She started a masters oh, yeah. in women's studies but never oh, finished yeah. it. Oh yeah, well so but yeah, so she did like a huge, huge amount with a relatively short time and made a lot of friends and was incredibly popular and sort of loved by everyone and also feared by a lot of people. My friends absolutely loved her but they were terrified. they were terrified of her. And rightly so. Um yeah. Me and my mum have never forgiven. Seb has this one friend. I'm not going to mention his <laughs> name. But he wronged Seb when Seb was, what, like 16? 17. 17. Yeah. And any time. And Seb's very forgiving. Maybe a bit unlike me. Um, and any time he walked in the house, me and mum would be like, <laughs> we'd yeah. just like hit at him and I give know. him evil looks. I forgave him and for I like still... two weeks. Yeah. And you were just like, never again. And I'm still a bit like, all right, mate. But now we love him. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but no, yeah, she, um, she did a lot and she was very fierce and she was very good at everything she sort of did and resilient and resilient massively she got her leg amputated twice and was just like oh, I can't wait to go back to work and I'm like oh my god go on holiday like, yeah, she was like oh how many box sets can I watch in I hospital know, I know literally and then yeah she just took everything like a champ yeah she did just like yeah I mean she was ill and like she had sort of chronic foot pain before they knew what it, this thing before was. Before I was born. Before we were born, I think. And like, and she just never let it get, like you would never know. And she was basically in agony because by the end of it, she had like, it was this cancer that literally ate the bone in your, like physically ate it. Like she had like a hole that they used to fill with concrete sometimes mm. and bone graft. And she had that for essentially her entire life. And like, imagine that just like having like, your your own cells eating each other and like crippling pain and you would just never know because she just didn't let it get on top, on top of her. I remember this moment and I had decided to do the race for life, which was relatively uncharacteristic. <laughs> Exercise came to me later. Um, and I remember, um, which is to raise money for cancer research. And I remember my mum turning around saying, this is fab, hun, but but why? You know, who are you running for? And I was like, you, you, <laughs> you have cancer, mum. And she's like, oh, yeah, I just never really associated as someone that had cancer. Yeah. yeah, she just never, nothing ever really fazed her at all. No, she was so stoic. Yeah, and just, like, strong, like, deep, deeply strong. Where do you think that came from? Like, because I'm really fascinated by people who are so resilient and I think just because I have, like, the lowest pain threshold <laughs> and get cancer like Trudes did everyone's gonna know about it yeah well 100 yeah was there something in in her upbringing or did she kind of cultivate that was that just how she was I always describe her as like deeply German yeah so she came from um immigrant parents and I think she had a German surname and a Jewish German German surname and the legacy of war I mean you know is is big Mm. um her mother um, suffers, I would say, with quite complex mental health issues. Um, her parents, her dad was alcoholic and they had a very difficult marriage, as far as we know. Um, she didn't really have much of a relationship with her dad. No. And I think, yeah, she was living with a legacy of a, of a war mm. and with parents that couldn't, were traumatised. A, a mother that was traumatised by the war. Yeah. And also her side of the family were like deeply impressive like like very um complex and quite damaged in a lot of ways but like you know from a family or like you know all the jewish women in our lives would love this but like all from like she had like 
eight generations of famous doctors in that family and people like that and like our I mean I found out recently that our great granddad was he's basically been cited as like the reason that Turkey exists a country because he went over as a pediatrician and when he was stripped of his German citizenship by Hitler and I think personally by Hitler I think he was sent a personal message by Hitler because he was very famous doctor um was basically stripped of his his uh his citizenship and, and medical license and then the Americans jumped straight on it because they were like we want this guy to come over to us and he was like no I want to go to a country that's developing and Turkey had only just really become like a country at the time and he cut personally he cut Turkey's infant mortality rate from something like 57 percent to seven percent while he was there so like he's actually cited as like making Turkey exist as a as a country so like it's like she come she basically came from a line of like incredibly successful and emotionally, and emotionally troubled <laughs> yeah. like like found, she wasn't emotionally troubled I don't think particularly but like I think she just got this sense of like oh I'm not going to be like sit there and be it's like woe is me I'm going to just get on with it which I think is good quality yeah she really did just get on with it yeah. and I think I definitely feel that I've um inherited a lot of that just getting on with it which sometimes can be detrimental actually Mm. um because sometimes things are not okay and you know we were talking about toxic positivity a few weeks ago and it can be quite easy to be like you know what it's fine she was great better to have lived but actually like she was a lot to lose yeah for for, like everyone who met her as well i mean her funeral was was massive like it was like they had to have like extra speakers and stuff so people could hear it was huge yeah, and very well organised. Very well organised. <laughs> Incredibly well organised. But none by me, because I definitely just shut down at that point, I think. Yeah. No, I mean, we were worried about you. Dad and I were worried about you, because you wouldn't really talk about it. And then I left. You know, mm. I went back to university, and, you know, you and Dad were just in the house, and that wasn't easy. No. No, it wasn't. Which I think is why I got straight back into college, essentially, and just, like, got stuck in. So our next question, Seb... Oh, sorry, Emily, did you want to say something, hun? I was literally just going to say, not to be too, like, therapist, but both of you have just ended up talking about, like, doing what Dr. Sue did, which is getting on with things. And I think it's difficult when we lose someone who is so resilient. Sometimes being vulnerable and grieving in the moment can somehow feel like a betrayal to that. Yeah. She wasn't a dweller. No, not at all. I tell you what. I saw mum, oh god, I get upset thinking about it, cry once yeah. when she was dying. Yeah. And it was horrible. Yeah, yeah, awful. It was awful, do you remember? Yeah. But and, once. And our uncle cried once, who is a doctor. Oh and, you god, know, that was awful. And he cried once, and I was like, he's the most stoic human being I've ever met, probably. And he cried, and I remember just being like, oh my well, god, fuck, yeah. if he's crying, then really I should be crying, but I didn't, no. I don't think. No, I didn't cry at the funeral, did you? No. I felt just a bit overwhelmed at the funeral, I think. Yeah. Everyone was doing a lot of head tilting. I was a bit like, oh, oh the head You're tilt. such a grief thief. Like, back off. Like, grief thief! Hey, that's a good expression. Yeah. Grief thief everywhere. Um, I want to ask you to tell a story about mum. Any story. Oh my god, I have so many stories. I've got two really good stories. One's directly about her and one's a sort of just after she died story. Go on then. The first one is, so basically, <laughs> I went to a Steiner school 
and um, it was very... Will you explain that to anyone that doesn't know So it's know like that? an alternative form of education where they sort of ho- focus on, like, holistic <laughs> education. Which So basically, I, did, I, I left school with three GCSEs, but I am really good at gardening and woodwork and metalwork. I can make a table out of anything, but I cannot tell you what an adjective is. If you would like someone to weave you a pot, ever, he's oh, yeah, a wonderful I can, weaver. I can weave you a basket, I can knit you or crochet whatever you want. Um... <laughs> I can make you a candle holder out of copper, but um, I, <laughs> you made, I can't do, you do my time you made a bong? Yeah, I made a bong, which is also, I made a bong at the request of the teacher, because <laughs> he was a real stoner, and we were like coming to that age, which is also kind of linked to the story, and he was just like, I was like, what do you want to make? He was just like, what do you want to make? And I was like, I don't know. And he was just like, why do you make an ashtray and a bong? So Anna's got my ashtray somewhere up here, I think, actually. Um, but the bong, I've never used, but it's actually, I think it would work. It's so Steiner. It's, so, it's very Steiner. Just, just for the record, I was not educated in the Steiner you system. You were not. I very no. much had a, a large comprehensive education with 3,000 people at my school. You did. And I, I was very much a number. A, a, a school that had 600 people, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I had this, uh, I had this, this teacher who I now love and get on really, really well with, called Mr. Harrop. Um, he was my gym teacher, but he was also, for some reason, which he will also laugh at, in charge of partial care. Um, so like about our well-being, and this was about, I think we were about fifteen. This is about when we, you know, we started like smoking the odd joint, you know, and being a bit rebellious and like having cigarettes or whatever. Um, and basically, there was this kid in my school. I'm not allowed to, I don't love to do names or anything. But he's called Louis, and he's actually a really sweet kid. I actually went and ended up going to university with him later in life. But um, his parents were like protective to the point of abusive. Like you know, where it's just like they wouldn't let him out after like certain times, and it was like, and he went to uni and really rebelled, and that was the way you do. But he, um, he basically came up to me and was just like, apparently you guys have started taking weed, um, which I thought was hilarious because who takes weed? Um, and I said, as a sort of fifteen-year-old who didn't really know anything, I said yes, and also I started dealing crap. <laughs> Um, but at that time I thought crack was a plant. I had literally no idea what crack was. Um, and, um, anyway, he went home and told his parents who then uh, called the school personally and, and, and told them that I was a crack dealer. So I got called in to like the pastoral care sort of, you know, and, and I remember mum getting a really sort of solemn call from Mr. Harrop being like, who is completely, I love him, but ill-equipped to be, he's a gym teacher, and very much a stereotype of a gym teacher, like massive, and it was like, oh, anyway, lovely guy now, we get on really well, we go for pints and stuff, um, but he, he basically called me in, he was just like, he called my mum, and he was just like, Sue, we've, we've got a real issue, and we need you to come tomorrow, like, like as soon as possible, with Sebastian, and she was kind of like, she, all right, whatever, and uh, we went there, and um, I basically explained to her what had happened and what I thought had happened. And she was like, all right, this is ridiculous. Like, I've got to finish work early. And my school was like 30 miles away. So it's like, it's a real slog. And she never used to come pick me up or anything because um, she worked. And um, and I remember we were sort of sitting outside these big double doors and they sort of open. And I look in and there's a very solemn looking Mr. Harrop. And he was just like, sort of tilted his head and he's just like, could you both come in here, please? And mum turns to me and just goes, sit down. And I was like, Oh. <laughs> I was like, all right, all right, ma'am. So I like sat down outside, and he was like, no, 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 we need to speak to both of you. And she was like, no, no, you'll speak to me. <laughs> and um, and the door shut, and about twenty minutes later, I couldn't really hear anything. Uh, and uh, the door opens, and Mum sort of, you know, prance out. And she's like, all right, Sebastian, let's go home. And I look in, and Mr. Harrop was just weeping. <laughs> and then never had an issue with me again, funnily enough. Um, and uh, yeah, and she did that a couple of times actually. She did that to your ballet teacher as well, I think. Where 
She hated in. Wow. Okay, that's triggering. Um, she did. She hated. Yeah, she hated injustice, mm. and she was so loyal. You know, if Seb was dealing crack, she would have dealt with that appropriately. She would have, but it was obviously so ridiculous. But these yeah. people just completely unequipped to do it. So that's my that's my story that directly involves. So that gives you sort of flavour. And then my other favourite story was I was actually speaking to with my friend Jack yesterday. It was we were in sick form, and um, and my mum had just died, and um. My had this really incredible tutor. She was like my personal tutor called Lucy, who I have never met. I've never bumped into her afterwards, which is really upsetting because she was just great. Like I probably couldn't have got through college without her. She used to just see me in the corridors and be like, mm, "Let's go for a cup of tea," and I'd be like, "Yeah, I think that's probably good." But um, basically, my friend Jack, um, who's my best friend, uh, has really, really bad hay fever to the point that he can't really see, and um, he sort of weeps uncontrollably, uh, which is ironic, because I sort of was as well at the time. Um, but he, basically, I got 5% extra added on to my GCSE, my A-level uh, results. Uh, that was because of mum dying, so I got 5%. And his hay fever gave him 3%. So there's a 2% difference in having hay fever and and your mum dying. But, I mean, in fairness, we were both crying about different things. <laughs> And he couldn't control his, whereas I technically could. So I guess it's kind of fair enough. But yeah, he um, he got yeah he got three percent, and I got five percent, and yeah, I still got really quite bad A levels. But I'll put that down to the, the dead mum, I think. Yeah, look at you now. I know, I'm bloody masters. He's got a masters, and I wish. And I'm just gonna say, I know it's so clever. But you know, mum, mum was anxious about you when she died like I said you were a young 18 year old without a clue what you wanted to do or where you're you hadn't found your thing yet mm. and it makes me really really sad deeply sad that she isn't here to see you get a fucking master's degree without an English A level mind well English GCSE without an English GCSE yeah, yeah. um and you know like become a really nice man mm. because they're not all nice no. and she would be very proud yeah, because initially she wanted me to, basically I didn't know what to do after college, and she was like, well, you are you love all these nurses that we have coming around, <laughs> so like, why don't you look into nursing? And at the time I was like, that's a really good idea. And I got into university to do nursing, went to all my interviews and stuff, and kind of smashed it, and then um, basically realised that I absolutely didn't want to do nursing, because it had been, been quite hard watching my mum die, and I just didn't think I could do that, like, on the regular so I basically decided that before she died and then basically just pretended that I was going to do nursing because I knew she was going to die soon. I didn't want that to be another sort of kick in the teeth. You know, you're about to die. Like, probably. Yeah, I'm not going to get Um, So I went travelling instead, you know, just, you know, gap year. Yeah, so I got into do nursing and then decided actually I didn't want to do that. So I ended up doing a foundation year and then sort of working my way up from the bottom, essentially. But that is the, the thing that I do feel sad about, and I talk about this in therapy a lot, is the fact that, like, I do think, she would have been proud of me, like, now. And we would have had a lot in common. Because, like, she just loved justice and hated injustice and really did a lot for everyone. And, like, that's kind of, like, what I've ended up doing any anywhere. Like, doing a lot of, co- like, really wanting to, like, do some good in the world. And I think that probably does come, like, stem from that. No, you're crying. I'm not crying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> I just want to reach through the screen and give you... That's the next step. That's the next update for our uh, podcasting platform. Yeah, if anyone from Zencast is listening, I need a hug. <laughs> we all need hugs right now. We need a group hug. Um, I'm going to ask our next question, but I sort of want because you're both here and because we 
Trudes and Dr. Sue, it was the same. It was a long decline, which was really difficult. What helped in your grief and what didn't? But also what helped in kind of your, we don't really have a term for it, do we? But like, while she was dying, did everything help at all? Booze. Oh, yeah, booze. Um, booze and, and drugs. <laughs> no. Um, um, I, think, I think during, nothing particularly helped. I had one really good friend, Harry, who was just like no bullshit kind of person, was just like, you're feeling rough, let's, like, let's do something. He was checking on me a lot, and he was really good. He really got me through her illness and her sort of initial, like, after death. But I don't think anything particularly helps it. Does it? Jokes. I mean, I, I was listening to one of your podcast episodes, actually, with the brother and sister, who were just saying that, like, dark jokes kind of made it better, and that's that's so true. And still to this day, I love absolutely, like, shocking my friend by making horrendously dark jokes. And some of my best and oldest friends can't... They don't, they don't really find them funny, I think, because they had relationships with my mum as well, you know, where they really sort of saw her as quite a maternal figure. But then it's my... It's, it's some friends who very much, like, then make the jokes straight back to you, and you're like, there you go, like... That's like I've got a few friends who I'll say make a dark joke and they'll just like one up me and I'm like that's exactly what you need I think sometimes or just friends to be like stop being an asshole stop being ridiculous like you're clearly sad and I'll be like no I am yeah and what what really didn't help did you find it isolating I found it isolating in the sense that like people really did struggle with it and it was my older better friends who really to this day like two of my oldest friends. Matt and Ruben, like, they still really struggle with it, I think, on a sort of similar, even, like, a similar level to me, because they grew up with her as well, and they had this sort of relationship with her, and, and, and our house was such a social hub, like, we had people around all the time, we had parties, we had, and we were just allowed to basically do what we wanted, you know, in moderation, or not moderation, because it's not your Depends how you look yeah. at it, yeah. <laughs> so, like, people had real relationships with her. And she really liked young people. Yeah. She wasn't that fussed about kids or babies no. or even other people's, you know, dogs or no. whatever. But she really loved talking to young people. She yeah. did a lot of work with young people and she worked with medical students mm. um, and she um, worked basically on basically one of the first like gap year schemes called the Overseas Training Programme, training up people that were between, you know, college, I guess, and university yeah, yeah. or further careers. She really was fascinated. She would ask people what they were up to what they were into how they were and she'd mean it yeah and also like she wrote everyone's personal statements against university and I think had a hundred percent success rate she did and I have taken over that from you her. have taken over that and, that and is why. I have a hundred percent success rate <laughs> you do rate. you do and that's why I got such a good masters because my proofreader um did it all for me no you didn't that's not true you read it you didn't do it. I'm pretty sure I wrote that Ellie one. always says that you wrote my my degree um, no, I have no idea what your degree's about, really. Okay. So, yeah, I think it's it's difficult because you forget that a lot of people that, that were just close to her in their own right, I think. And it was a real struggle. Like, it was more awkward with my friends after she died, my, like, really good friends, who you think are supposed to be, like, your support network. And now I look back and I think, actually, no. Like, in a way, I felt like I should be supporting them because if, for them, it's, it's, it's probably equally as hard. In, in a, a different way. In a different ways yeah. um, for them to deal with it. And so I look back on that now and I think actually like even my friends who I thought were quite shit with it weren't, they were just going through their own grief. That's a very generous response of you. Oh, I let everything go though, don't I? Just you do. Head. 
what what really didn't help? Do you remember people like you say the head tilt you didn't like? Oh my god, talk about it. Talk about it. <laughs> there is conferring between the Burt siblings right now for the benefit. Oh my god, I love this story. Oh my god, yeah, there was this one girl who I went on my first year of university, and like we sort of like we we I think we live like in similar halls to each other, like like adjacent halls, and um, and we basically like kissed once, and then it was one of these ones where like. I would get like hundreds of messages from her, and it was a bit like, "Ooh, this is quite a lot." Um, and then, and then I remember once I just didn't reply for ages because I was a bit like, "This is kind of nuts." And then she <laughs> turned around. She was like, "I'm so sorry, um, but like my friends, like uh, this girl I went to college with, like grandma died, um, so it just sent me like completely west." And I was a bit like, "Come on, like, <laughs> is that your excuse?" <laughs> like, I was just like. I was like, fair enough. I was just like, my mum just died. <laughs> like, Did you say that? Well, no, because I'm not going to be an arsehole about it. But I was a bit like... And you know what? She might have been close to her friend's grandma. Yeah, But true. it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. But I don't think anything... What happened, I remember, is that your girlfriend of the time really maturely broke up with you. She did. When mum got diagnosed as terminal. And I really respected her for it. Mm. Because she was basically like, I can't support you through this. Yeah. You? Yeah, that was when I, yeah, when I was like 17, I guess. Yeah, she was basically just like, and at the time, I was like, oh my God, how can you do this to me? Like, I'm about to go through something really shit. And then Anna was actually just like, well, it's, it's actually completely fair enough that, that you know, she is very aware that she couldn't have sort of dealt with that. Um, and also it's a sort of young relationship, I guess it, there wasn't that much riding on it. But like, yeah, I think it's all just about perspective. And should we talk about dad for a bit? Oh, God. Now I am back in therapy. Um, <laughs> now you are. Talk about your daddy. Because I think it's fair to say that I didn't have much of a... Our parents were together, mm. which is lovely. But um, Unhappy. Unhappy, yeah. I didn't have much of a relationship with dad when mum was alive because I didn't really need to. No. How do you feel well, about that? He's too soft for you, I think, really. <laughs> Which is not a homophobic no, it is slur. Not, no, <laughs> not at all. I mean, Dad is is an interesting one because we always describe him as a shit dad but a really great guy. And actually, I think the more I say that, the less fair it is. Yeah, I think he's because a good, he's learned. I look back and now, and I'm, I'm like, Dad, my like our dad has lost everyone in his life. He was an orphan by the time he was eighteen. He then loses his, you know, he loses his oldest brother, and, his and then his wife. And both his siblings are much older than him because he was very much a mistake. A happy surprise. A happy surprise. A happy happy accident. But like he has literally, I I couldn't even imagine to sort of go through what he's been through and come out just universally loved by every single person that has ever met him. So I look back and I think it's kind of harsh saying that he's a shit dad. He just didn't, he didn't really, he wasn't really equipped to help us. Yeah, I think he suddenly had two grown-up grieving children that he hadn't established the, the kind of boundaries and basis of a relationship Yeah, with. he basically couldn't be the support that we needed him to be. And at the time, I was so angry at him. And Anna sort of, you went through a sort of six-month stage of really not speaking to him. And it was quite painful, because um, I sort of felt like a sort of mediator throughout that time. But then, Sorry. well, no, that's fine. I, I completely got it. And then I kind of had this epiphany mode. Well, I basically, I got to this stage where I was like, dad is just so bad at supporting me and I don't know what to do. Sort of venting it out at chain smoking cigarettes. And 
you sort of had been through this previously and sort of turned around and were just like, well, but like, if you think about it, like, you don't need him to be that person. Like, he, you know, like, he's good at what he's good at and he's the best, most fun person ever, but he isn't equipped to have dealt with his grief on top of ours. And after that, I was kind of like, was just like that's completely fair enough and it can it was just it was like a weight had been lifted as soon as I stopped expecting yeah things from him and because I think what I was always looking for was mum yeah 100%. and what we had and we, that. and we weren't getting them we'd never get that because no, no one's like her no. apart from me yeah <laughs> it's terrifyingly true um yeah so that was difficult but like now I look back and I think god I was a real piece of shit to him sometimes Oh, it was very difficult, but I yeah. feel like we've all spent a lot of time and energy repairing, you know, and making the best out of our grief. And he lives up in Yorkshire now, as I've mentioned. And we mi- we both said how much we miss him. Oh, yeah. I mean, through COVID, but also just the ease of his company. And I love the way he talks about mum. So, yeah. um, you know, they were best friends. Yeah. Um, my dad literally. kept, yeah, literally, he was um, my mum's gay best friend and um, our mum, sorry, oh. and they got married which is a wonderful story, but also when he was dealing with his grief, he was also coming out publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was going through a lot. Also, he's from a kind of... Um, traditional. Traditional northern family, being a Catholic family. There was a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and so much stuff. And actually, he's is this really sad story about Betty, who's my dad's mum. They never fought, and they had one disagreement about him being gay or coming out and then she died so the next day the next day and he never resolved that so dad hates conflict yeah and he can't deal with it he cannot deal with it and i think that that's that's why mm. but he is like the most wonderful person one of the best people i've ever met yeah but you just have to change your expectations of people and realize that everyone grieves in a different way yeah and um, that we were grieving kids, but he was a grieving kid. He's grieving his wife and his mum mm. and his brother, and also the life that he had as a heterosexual family man, and suddenly being a single gay man with two grown-up adult yeah, children, who also definitely knew. <laughs> it's like the least surprising come out of all time. I yeah. Think. <laughs> but what was nice is that like they they were very much best friends that got married, but also like they did love each other. Like like dad is is, is gay through and through. But just really like fell in love with mum and vice versa. And she was also never gonna marry a man who, you know Ever spoke back ever, to her. Ever spoke back to her or did That's anything. very passive. He's very passive and just very kind. So it just kind of was perfect in their own way. I wouldn't have lasted a minute being married to mum because we'd have just been sense of. Oh my god, absolutely. It would have been terrifying. I just find that so interesting because I know a lot of people would be like, Oh, if he was gay, then he can't be married. And I think again there's like so many different facets and relationships and I think I've raved about Esther Perel on this podcast before and definitely but she has this beautiful phrase where it's you know you can love so many people in your life but there's probably only a very few people that you can build a life with and it's just lovely hearing about their relationship is it sounds like and again it's like yeah sexuality is one part of a relationship a long loving relationship as well and they also only met like three times before they got married. Yeah, it was almost like an arranged marriage. Yeah, but like in a nice way that wasn't detrimental. No one was forced to anything. <laughs> but yeah, because they both lived in different parts of the world and they just kind of just wrote letters to each other and 
then we're just like, let's get married. I found the letter that Dad wrote, or the telegram, I think it was a telegram that yeah. Dad wrote Mum when I was clearing out her stuff to suggest, and it suggested eternal partnership. And yeah. it was just lovely because also I remember this really, I'm not sure if I told you this yet, but Mum and I went away just before I went back to university a few months before she died. Um, well, I was only there for a few days, to be honest, before we had to come back. And yeah. she said, whatever happens, you need to remember that I loved your dad and your dad really looked after me. And I remember thinking, yeah, obviously you love that. Yeah, of course you love that. Mm. You know, whatever. But actually what she meant was that at some point you're going to find out that your dad is gay. And um, I need you to know that I love him absolutely in whatever way that means. Mm. And he was the best carer he cares oh, for God, people yeah. in a way that makes you never feel disabled you don't like what laura was saying when we recorded last week he is one of those people that you don't need to ask if you're ill or you know she never had to ask no, him to do anything stuff. he would just do it he's an instinctive carer mm. and she was very disabled really through since i was since seb you were about 12 13 yeah she was very disabled you know with a either in a wheelchair, depending on amputation time, on crutches with a walking stick, you know, if or it was on yeah. a prosthetic, if it was icy, she couldn't go out, all of this. He facilitated her to feel strong and independent. Yeah, 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 he did. It was kind of amazing, actually, and it was I so effortless. Think, yeah, and I can't think of many people that could do that. I wouldn't do that. Do you not? I'll just pay carers, I think. Dad is just far too good of a person. Yeah, he's a really good person. <laughs> Oh, I hope he hears this. Yeah, I do as well. I'll be weeping uncontrollably. Yeah. <laughs> this is ever so sad, but also lovely. So, what, Seb, what do you. I always feel like I want to phrase this question a different time every time I ask because it feels dependent on who we're talking about. But what do you wish that you were asked by people? But also to that, it's not necessarily like that question. What do you want to be able to say? Because I feel like I was definitely, uh, you know, maybe it makes sense that I am in many ways an emotional exhibitionist now. Because still, generally in conversation, I'm not very good at bringing stuff up. Yeah. I was definitely brought up, you know, wait until you're spoken to, to speak. And I think, you know, that's probably why I to stand up because I'm like well technically if someone's bought a ticket that means I want to hear what I have to say but yeah what do you what question do you wish you were asked or just simply what would you like to say that isn't necessarily sort of triggered by a question oh as if this was sort of uh, advice for people going through could be anything yeah anything and everything I think it's sort of a cliche of that like grief never gets it never gets easier but it just gets more easy to deal with but I mean, I think for me, I have like a huge difficulty surrounding guilt, which well, I think we get from dad's Catholic guilt. Um, but like, I think essentially it's just people, I think you, you have this, you have this innate sort of feeling that you can't ever like, you have to think about the person every single day or you have to, um, you know, you have to be like constantly thinking about, about the person that's died or like, or, you, or like, or you're a bad person almost. And I think for me, it's very much like, there are days go by where I don't think about mum or I do and I don't, you know, like, n like it's not like there enough to, for me to realise it or recognise it. 
But I think it's absolutely fine not to forget about someone, but for them not to be at the forefront of your entire life. Because if you if you have to live in a constant, perpetual state of grief, you never get anything done. And so I think that's why it sort of brings back to the the first question is like, how is your grief? Because I think it is, it's obviously more pronounced today because it would have been her birthday. And I also feel a bit guilty for forgetting, as I do every single year. Do you want me to start sending you notifications like I know, a week before? I get Zoe, to, Zoe just okay. calls me the day right. before. <laughs> just let me know. Um, but like, I think there is, you, you can not feel sad the entire time and not feel bad about it in a way. And like, I think there is a lot of pressure on people to really feel like they need to be thinking about the person all the time or they need to be constantly feeling a little bit sad about that, that person's not there anymore. And I think for me, it's definitely heightened when like an, a, an event happens or like something happens in your life. The and good things. Think, though, yeah, the good things. Yeah, they're all the good things. Like when I got my master's, I was just a bit like, God, she would have actually like, she wouldn't have, but like, she it would have been so it. surprising. Like I'm like super distract, dyslexic, can't really read or write and like have three GCSEs and some pretty, shit A levels and AS levels and was like top of my class in my masters and wrote an award winning. He won an award. And like I think she would have like it would have been so funny because as soon as I got that that message being like you've you won best dissertation, I remember thinking she would have absolutely pissed herself laughing. Because for her, I think when she died I was so young and lost and didn't really know what I was gonna do with my life or where I was gonna go. And I think she was really quite I don't. I didn't think at the time, but I think she really was quite worried about my future. And I think if she could see it now, she would genuinely be like a, a combination of proud and also just like like laughing hysterically. When Seb was little, he wouldn't eat vegetables, and I distinctly remember Mum. Bearing in mind she wasn't the most mobile person ever, when Seb ate a tomato, her lying on the floor like a beetle, going because she was so shocked and yeah. she would do something similar here in your masters yeah. she also gave me 20 quid for eating tomato what nice. i can't believe that yeah but like yeah i mean i think it's just difficult when something good happens but something shit happens you're a lot but you're a bit like oh what advice would she give me but then when something good happens it's really hard it's much harder i think because you really want to be able to share that but you just don't have the ability or the option to even do that anymore so i have to Turn to my sister mum instead. Sister mum. Sister mum. That sounds like some horrible hey you reality show. Sister mum. Rednecks. <laughs> <laughs> but no, and also like she was just like, yeah, I just missed the scariness. She she like kicked a door off its hinges twice on us. Because <laughs> we were hiding in the bathroom from her. Our bathroom it was the only room in the house that had a lock. Um, so me and, broke it down. me and Anna would piss her off to the point and also like she was pretty immobile she had a prosthetic leg and I remember one time um, I remember I pissed her off to the point that she was like like seething incandescent it, like, yeah yeah and I ran upstairs locked myself in the bathroom and sort of put the, the hook lock on and was like ha she can't get me in here and I sort of hear this dum 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 up the stairs like slowly because obviously she had one leg that was metal bionic essentially and uh, I remember thinking and then it sort of stops outside the room and I remember thinking she can't get me in here and then the door came <laughs> off its hinges and I'm talking like she didn't just knock the door open off the lock like the whole door <laughs> came did. down in front of me and I was like 
I have gone too far this time. And I recognise, <laughs> I recognise I've gone too far this time. And then she was just there with like her like Terminator leg, like outwards. And I remember being like, oh my God, we've created a monster. Like, <laughs> Do you remember though? She couldn't stop laughing. Yeah. She, I remember she was just like, couldn't stop laughing at her own strength and how scared you were. Yeah. And how absurd... The whole situation was, she was feisty, man. Yeah. One time I really pissed her off and she just got my hand and put it in the sort of knee joint of her prosthetic oh leg. Oh my just, God. Like a nutcracker. Just <gasps> cut it. No, she didn't. And I was like. Spatting this child no, abuse. No, it's, it's not child abuse because it's funny now. And I remember being like, oh my God, she has weaponry that we did not expect her to have. <laughs> and like, yeah, it was just like, there was a lot of like fierce fun. And like, you know, one time, because she, she. She always had, she had like phantom limb pain where, where her leg was amputated. So she basically could feel it the entire time. And like it would itch and she'd make me sort of feign itch her like, foot where her foot would have been, which I don't think helped at all. Well, I remember one time me and my dad were sitting in the living room and she had this fancy chair that would like lift her up. And one time me and my dad were sitting there and she was just reading whatever. And we were both sort of like, something's wrong about what's happening right now but I can't figure it out and neither of us could figure it out and she was slowly raising herself up me and my dad were sort of looking at each other like like what is wrong and basically she just didn't have her prosthetic leg on and went to step with no leg and just face planted <laughs> and I remember like sh- being shocked and also just like crying with laughter as was dad and she sort of looked up and looked at him and I was like oh my god dad run <laughs> like, I was like you need to get out of this place now but I think actually my favourite story about mum is that we always used to go on really nice holidays. They're very extravagant. You know, she, they used to like save up a lot of money and take us to really nice places. And we went, I think it was when we went to Tanzania mm-hmm. and she, um, we were on Malarone, you know, the horrible anti-malaria drug. That is, like, it's like essentially a psychotic, like it's really bad. And mum used to have really bad reactions to it and have like really vivid dreams. And one time she woke up and was so angry at dad. She didn't speak to him, like fully didn't speak to him for a week. And I was like, what? what's going on and she was like oh no like it's stupid and I was just like you need to talk to dad because he doesn't know what he's done and he's just really upset because he just doesn't know what he's done and she was like all right you're gonna laugh at me but like I had this dream <laughs> that he got his arms bitten off by a crocodile and I was like oh what and and you were annoyed at him for, for, for this dream she's like yeah but that's not the part it's just he was so unhelpful around the house <laughs> <laughs> because he didn't have any arms and I was like mum you haven't spoken to dad in a week from a ridiculous dream that you have had. And it's just like, it's like little things like that that you remember and you think, uh, like, there was some good, there was some good shit, but it is sad that that can't, you don't get that anymore. Like, there's no new stories, it's only past stories. Yeah. And we'd have enjoyed each other's company as adults, I know that. And that's the thing I feel really upset about, is I think I would have had, I, I have so much more in common with my mum now than I did when she died. Like, I was an 18-year-old little shit back then, like, who had nothing really in common with her, you know, didn't really like school, didn't really like, you know, academia or anything like that. Now I'm the complete reverse. I'm the most nerdy person ever, and I just want to do a PhD and be, you know, do a few. And, like, she <laughs> Not like your sister that, either, mate. <laughs> but she would find that, like, hysterically funny that, that's, that I'm even saying those words. And it's just like, I would have so much more to have in common with her now than I did. And I think that's the thing I find, like, hard. Well, at least you've got your sister, Mum. Exactly. The top proofreader in the entire world. That's going to have to stop at some point. I cannot read everything in your whole career 
I'm I'm just going to put this on the record. Let's do this publicly, Seb. There has to be an end point for this. Plus, I have a day rate. <laughs> I'll pay your day rate. <laughs> like... No, no, no. Um, Seb, thank you. I that was I enjoyed that more than I thought I would. Yeah, so did I actually. Quite cathartic. It's been a delight to witness. Quite honestly, like you're a couple of bubblers. Just too loud, loud people. And I never tire of hearing about Bionic Doctor Sue. Yeah. Um. Just, just amazing, and it means a lot to talk about her with you guys on her birthday. Oh well, thank you for facilitating this, Em, because it's really good to be able to commemorate her in this way today. Mm. And we're gonna order a, a big fat curry and drink some beer and watch Drag Race. Yes. Yes. Um. Right. Well. Thank you, Seb. Thank you, Anna. Would you like to let anyone know your social media? Well, it's all private, isn't it? I've got a Twitter, but I never use it, and I don't know. Mm, what my I wouldn't be proud is. of that if I were you. It's just <laughs> rinsing Donald Trump supporters on Twitter. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I just would share it. Yeah. Um, all right. All right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mother of All Losses podcast. This episode was produced by Chris Thorburn. Music by Kane Aris, who can be found at Atom Collection 2 on SoundCloud. With huge thanks to Hannah Trevathan. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on themotheroflosses at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care of yourselves and your grief.